going to be finishing 1 Samuel today. We're going to be reading chapter 31. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, the scripture is printed along with an outline in the bulletin. And although we're finishing 1 Samuel, next week is the end of our series. We're actually, 2 Samuel chapter 1 goes with what we're going to read. And so Bill McCurin's going to be preaching on that next week, 2 Samuel 1. So, but we're going to be reading 1 Samuel 31 today. So give ear. Listen, this is God's word. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest he's uncircumcised. Come and thrust me through, and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is God's word. Saul of Benjamin. Saul, the son of Kish. That's what would be written on the tombstone of Saul. It would say, Saul, son of Kish, reigned over Israel from 1050 to 1010 BC. And it's interesting. 1050 dash 1010 right that dash think about that dash for a second everything that Saul did everything he did both good and bad all of his works all of his actions all of his words the good things he did the deplorable things he did in a sense they're all written over with this dash 
right? You think about a tombstone, and that's what it has, right? Day of your birth, it's got the day of your death. And there's a dash in between that represents who you are. It represents what you've done. It represents you. And I think it's interesting. With Saul, his final episode actually captures the sum total of his life. We see in the final episode of Saul's life both the good and the bad. And as we look at this, all of us at some point are going to have something, if it's on a tombstone or if it's in an obituary, we're going to have that dash. And that dash is going to represent us. What is that dash going to mean for you? If you were able to expand that dash, what would you like to see there? We're going to see three things in Saul's life. These are the, if you want to take notes, you can write these things in your bulletin. We're going to see three things that show us Saul of Kish and his reign. We're going to see first walking into death unarmed. Second, dying by your own sword. And then third, the shame and rescue of the king. So walking into death unarmed, dying by your own sword, the shame and rescue of the king. So first, walking into death unarmed. This is verses 1 and 2. Saul went into this battle and he was utterly unprepared. He was utterly unprepared. What's interesting is that the last time we saw Saul, Saul, he was trying to contact Samuel, the prophet, to get a word from him, a word from God, and yet God was silent. Samuel reminded Saul that what he needed to do, that his predicament was the result of him not heeding the voice of the Lord, not obeying God's revealed word. And from then, we saw that Saul went out at night, and now this is where we see him next. He went into battle. There was no sign of making amends with God, no sign of preparing himself for what he was about to experience. He was promised that on this day, in this battle, he would die, he and his sons. And we see nothing. There's no, there's no amends. There's no repentance. There's no communication with God. There's nothing but him going into battle. And he took his sons. He took his sons with him. We have no indication that he warned them. We have no indication that he let them know what was going to happen. And I'm struggling with this. Like, what, what, what's going on? Like, Saul's not, I mean, usually people have reasons behind what they do. And if you can figure it out, you can understand it. You think, well, I disagree with you, but at least I understand why you did what you did. But here I'm at a loss. I mean, maybe did he just not believe? I mean, that'd be one thing. Maybe he didn't believe what Samuel said to him. Right? Maybe he didn't believe that God would actually do it. Maybe he thought he could overcome it. Well, if we go in and fight in this way, or I can maneuver, or we can set up a plan that will keep us from being killed, or I'll be extra protected. I don't know. But I do know, that I guess, that there are people, this happens 
I mean, today all the time, there are people who get exposed to the truth of God and yet seem to push it aside, right? There are people in whose lives God has shown up. God has shown that he is real in their lives, and yet they continue to live as though God isn't real. You know, there's people who do that, like circumstances line up in amazing ways that cannot be coincidence. People don't acknowledge the hand of God. Some people have people in their lives who are amazing pictures of God and his love and his care and his wisdom and his grace. And they'll receive the benefits of that relationship, but they'll ignore the God that they're seeing in the life of their friend. Where's God shown up in your life? I mean, where have you had this experience? And are you listening? Are you acknowledging the presence of God when he shows up in your life? I mean, maybe Saul's situation was because as leader, he needed to show confidence, right? He's leading the army of Israel into battle. And if he were to indicate what the outcome was going to be, he couldn't lead, right? Or he'd bring shame to his name. He'd bring disgrace to his name. And we know Saul doesn't want that. You know, Saul from almost the time when he got started with his reign was really out for his own reputation. And so maybe Saul was worried that if he indicated anything, even if he didn't bring his sons with him into battle, that he might be indicating, right? Because if, if you're the king and you're going into battle, you're leading your people into battle. And if you leave your children, your sons, you know, back at home, maybe that's an indication that you think you're going to die. And Saul couldn't have that. And so he didn't warn his sons. He didn't want to show weakness or uncertainty. And you just wonder, like, if that was what was going on in Saul. My reputation, my son's lives. My reputation, my son's lives. And he goes with his reputation. I mean, I'd rail on him for that. I would. I would go after him. I would talk about the foolishness. I would talk about the utter arrogance and the pride. And are you kidding me? What are you doing, Saul? And yet, when I started thinking about how to rail against Saul for this, I looked in and the same thing is in me. The same thing is in me. I am often unwilling to admit my faults, unwilling to admit my weaknesses to save face. And oftentimes it can be family. You know, we struggle with this, I think. We're not that unlike Saul. I mean, Saul had much more power, and so what he does was more egregious because it affected the lives. And yet, sometimes I feel like we put our own friends, family members through a slow death because we're unwilling to say that we're sorry. We're unwilling to say that we were wrong. And then we force the people closest to us to live with the effects of our arrogance and our stubbornness. Saul, again, is a picture of where that kind of thing leads. Okay? I mean, if that hits you like it hit me this week, you need to know that you're walking down a road and Saul's down at the end. Okay? And if you continue down this road, you may end up literally sacrificing a friend, a loved one. Um... I actually have a cartoon that I want to share with you. I think we can do the slide thing. I saw this and I just thought, oh my goodness, this is Saul. 
Can we put the first cartoon up? Let's see if we can get this up here. Okay, this is a cartoon called Pearls Before Swine, which has an appropriate name. So you got Rat and, uh, and the pig talking, and you got this thing flying here. And so the pig says, whoa, what's that up there? And Rat says, nuts, it's Tata, the willowy temptress of temptation. What's she do? She tries to get you to follow her, and if you're dumb enough to do it, she wrecks you, ruins you, and reduces you to a life of unspeakable regret. <laughs> and then Rat grabs on, goes for a ride. Admittedly, it's hard to explain my decision-making. Is this speaking to any of you? <laughs> I mean, oh, there you go. Got an aunt named Tata. Well, hopefully she's not. Oh, no. All right, well, can we scratch that from the tape then? We won't tell her name. This is kind of what happens, though, sometimes, right? We know where we're going, right? You know where this leads. You know how this gets worse and worse, and yet we grab on for the ride. We grab on for the ride. You know, and I think, you know, this gives me a little compassion for Saul, and it made me think, you know, how many people, in a sense, figuratively speaking, are going into battle every day knowing they're going to lose? You know, knowing that you have no resources to do and to be what you want to be and do. Right? I mean, you think about it. Maybe, maybe it's at work, you know, where you're going into work and you know you're facing a situation that just cannot ever, ever get better. And you just feel like you're taking it on the chin every single day. Maybe it's a relationship that you just, for some reason, the buttons get pushed and you respond the wrong way every time and you feel like you're just going into death. You're walking in every single time. And you can't avoid it. You know, where this ends up leading is this idea of resignation. And I feel like that's maybe where Saul is right now. He's just resigned to accept there's nothing he can do about his life. And when I think about that, that hits people on both ends of the age spectrum, right? There are folks who are older who just have this sense that nothing's ever going to change. This is who I am, and I've missed out on so much, and I can't do anything about it. You know, and then on the younger side, it's the cynicism that gets us. You know, we have such a cynic or a cynical view on life that things can't improve. My relationships can't improve. My work will never improve. My marriage won't improve. And as I thought about this, this reminds me of, um, of King Claudius in Hamlet. You know, the Shakespeare play Hamlet. Claudius took the crown and the queen and the glory by killing his brother. Okay? So he kills his brother, takes the throne, takes his wife, you know, his brother's wife, to, you know, for himself, and takes the glory. And then there's this scene where he wants to be forgiven. And what he says reminds me of Saul. He says this, My fault is past, but oh, what form of prayer can serve me? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder. My crown, my own ambition, and my queen, may one be pardoned and retain the offense? As often, uh, as often it's seen that the wicked buys out the law, but tis not so above... Yet what can repentance do when one cannot repent? 
O wretched state, O bosom black as death, O limed soul struggling to be free, bow stubborn knees and heart with strings of steel, be soft as the muscles of a newborn babe. And then he stands up at the end of his prayer and he says, My words fly up, my heart remains below. Words without heart never to heaven go. Claudius wants to be right with God, but he doesn't want to turn away from the spoils of his sin. He doesn't want to give up the things that he's gotten as a result of of what he's done. And Saul is in the exact same place. Saul doesn't want to come back. What's amazing here is that even now in this text, there's still hope if Saul would repent. If Saul would return and come back to God, he could He could, but he won't. That's the tragedy of Saul. I got one more cartoon. These came like one right after the other. I just, I mean, it's so fitting for what we're talking about here. So now this is rat flying, and now we have goat who comes into the picture. What are you doing up there, rat? I'm being carried off by Tata, the willowy temptress, O temptation. She will wreck me, ruin me, reduce me to a wretched pile of rueful regret. Then why don't you just let go? She smells good. (laughs) You know, I mean, we laugh because it's true. You know, we. it smells good, right? It feels good. Sin will promise you the world. The temptation comes and it says you can have it all. Pleasure, power, money, sex, you know, reputation. You can have glory. You can have it all. And it smell, It has the smell like it's true. It smells true. And we give in. That's where it leads us. And we know it. We know it. Sometimes we forget it, but then we do it. We know it. And uh, we just got to be able to let go. David in chapter 30, just the verse before, said, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I thought, wow, I mean, that's really the answer. David strengthened himself, chapter 30, verse 6, in the Lord his God. If you've been resigned that things aren't going to get better, that's your verse. You need to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. Because with God comes power, With repentance comes forgiveness, and with forgiveness comes a cleansing of your heart. God doesn't just take away the sin, but he will actually, like, wipe off the smudge on your heart that produced the sin. There is real power that comes when you come back to God. There is real power and grace that flows because of Jesus. You just need to come back. You need to draw near to God. But Saul walked into death unarmed. Our second point, dying by your own sword. This is verses 3 to 10. Dying by your own sword. When the battle rages and he heats up, Saul kills himself in battle. He sees his end coming and he really tries to save himself is what he's doing. You know, verse 4 shows it to us. Draw your sword, thrust me through it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. 
I mean, Saul's trying to save himself from, you know, from what they're going to do to him. And again, no amends, no urgency to prepare to meet God, no prayer offered, no sense of trying to reconcile with God. Even at the end of his life, Saul's concern is just to save himself, is to die with pride and to save himself from the ridicule and the mockery of the Philistines. I mean, that's what he's thinking about. And it's ironic that he dies by his sword. You know, it was, it was Goliath's fate as well. Right? One author said, if you live like a Philistine, you're going to die like a Philistine. If you use your spear, you know, which was both Saul and Goliath, you know, were known for their spears. Use your spear like Goliath, lose your head like Goliath. And so not only does Saul die, but his head is cut off. He is stripped. His body is fastened to a wall. His head ends up in the east. His armor ends up in the west. And it's interesting because no matter how hard in life and even in death Saul tried to save face, he couldn't do it. No matter how hard he tried. You know, you, do you feel like there's something in your life that you're just you're going after with all your might? Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a career, maybe it's an accomplishment, maybe it's a relationship. You know, when you feel like squeezing, you know, you're trying to squeeze so hard, and it's like sand, right? The harder you squeeze, the more it seeps out of your hand. As hard as he tried, he could not prevent what happened to him. And this is true of all of our efforts at life apart from God. Because either things will not work out, or they will, and it won't be satisfying. And that's what life apart from God is. Now, as we look at Saul and see this death, I want you to see the gruesomeness of Saul's fate, okay? I mean, obviously, it's, it's you know, it's not PG, you know, some of the details here. But I want you to see this as a picture because I think that what happens to Saul is just a picture of what sin does to us. Okay, I mean, catch this, that Saul's mutilation, his dismemberment, it's really a picture of what's going on inside Saul's heart. This is an outward demonstration of what Saul had been living with inside of him for years. You know, and I think the Philistines in this picture show us that as we struggle to live our lives, right, as we struggle to be happy, to be satisfied, to have significance in the midst of our struggles, there are forces at work. There are things that are trying to destroy us. Okay? There are things that operate, and we know this, right? You feel it. You know, sometimes you don't know how to name it or what it really is, but you know there's stuff that's working against you. And what sin does, I mean, sin, like the Philistines, rejoice that it can make sport of your body. Sin rejoices. It is exuberant when it tears you up that it can cut off your head, that it can mangle your body. Because that's what sin does. That's what it does. You know, you know, Saul's life, I mean, it was mangled even before his death. right? We've seen this. If you've been with us and watched this, Saul's jealousy and rage tore him up. His striving for personal glory and the establishment of his kingdom and his name. His materialism, his impatience his trust in his own strength versus God's, 
I mean, ultimately, it's his unwillingness to apologize. His unwillingness to listen to others when he's confronted. These are the things that ravaged Saul from the inside out. These are the things that made sport of his life and really have painted a picture of him where everybody knew what was going on except for him. You know, people that were watching him, he was the emperor with no clothes on, walking around trying to make a semblance of his life. And sin does the same thing to us. I mean, what's it doing to you right now? I mean, is it jealousy? Is it anger? Is it your own personal reputation? Is it materialism? Impatience? What is it that's got a hold of you and is tearing you apart? What is making your heart look like Saul's body looked? Now, what's interesting is that Saul's destruction also affects everything around him. You know, sometimes we sort of have the caveat of, well, at least this is just, you know, I've got, I'm making this decision for myself, right? It doesn't affect anybody else. It just affects me. I can make my own decisions and nobody else should be able to say anything to me, right? The problem is it's not that clean. In Saul's situation, his sons, verse 6, are killed with him. He killed his sons. His character, his unwillingness to return to God is what killed his sons. I mean, this happens to us. Our sins affect the people around us, and usually it's the people we love that are closest to us that bear the brunt of the damage of our sins. Verse 7, it affects the city. When the people saw what happened, all the people, all the men of Israel, they fled the cities and the Philistines came and lived in them. Incredible irony here, because if you remember at the very beginning, when they first asked for a king, when Saul was first appointed king in chapter nine, verse 16, it says that Saul would free Israel from the Philistines. And here at his death, we find out that Israel is right back where they started. After 40 years of reigning, Israel is no better off than when they started. So it affects Saul's sons. It affects the city. I mean, because that's for us, too. Our sin spills out. I mean, the stuff that we do, and the more authority you have, the more of an impact you know, your decisions make on the people around you. That's for good and for bad. But in this case, for Saul, it's obviously for bad. But then third, it affects God. It affects God because in this battle, it appears from everybody that's seeing this, especially the Philistines, that their gods have defeated the God of Israel. Even though Saul had cut himself off from God, because he still bears the name of an Israelite, because he still calls himself an Israelite, He's bringing shame, and his fate is a reflection on his God. And so we just, we need to know that. Like we need to recognize that it's not just us by ourselves, that the things that we do affect the people around us. They affect the city that we live in. So this is dying by your own sword. Our third point is the shame and rescue of the king. And this is verses 9 to 13. The shame and rescue of the king. So in terms of, of Saul's shame, 
you know, we've seen the destruction of sin in his life, right? We've seen how and compared what happened to his body to the effects of sin in his life. But on top of that is the shame that Saul endured in his death. Okay, the Philistines made sport of the king of Israel. His head was cut off. He was stripped naked of his armor and his body was fastened to a wall in a public city. So everybody could look. And I mean, for us, I don't think, I mean, I think we get some sense of this, but not enough. Um, Throughout the Mediterranean world, there was horror even in just leaving a corpse unburied. Okay? Just to not bury a corpse in the ground was to bring shame and was to bring just horror. People wouldn't do that. It was not done. I mean, it was the, it was the height of insult. You know, but more than that, I mean, this was a culture where burial places were honored. Right? I mean, the ancient Near East, you think about the glorious tombs that were created for some kings. Right? And the care that went into, even in the Bible, you see some of this, the care that went into where the bones of a person ended up. Right? There was a huge, it was hugely significant. And so to not be buried was to be really shamed. I mean, it was to show no class. You know, it was loss of honor, no reputation, no respect would be paid for you. But then to take, cut off a head and stick it on a wall. Do you understand? I mean, I'm trying to, I mean, it's hard because we don't live in that culture, but everyone could see the disgrace and the humiliation of the king. Everyone could make fun of him, could spit on him, could, could ridicule him and all the people that followed him and the whole army and the whole nation of Israel, right? It was completely, I mean, the shame, we just, we can't even understand it. You know, the body being left out like that, birds of prey. I mean, that's what ends up happening. The birds come and they begin to pick at it. And pretty soon, I mean, just, it's disgusting. It's awful. Disease sets in. And that's what was the fate of Saul. Like, that was the shame. And it's so ironic because this was like the one thing out of his whole life that he didn't want to have happen, right? Striving so hard and yet maybe as hard as he was striving, that's how bad his shame was as he's nailed to the wall. When I think about this, it reminds me of Jesus. You know, and the more shameful I understand the condition of Saul, the worse his situation is, the more I realize what Jesus went through for us. Right? I mean, think about this. Jesus was treated in the exact same way as Saul. The same way, in in almost the same culture. He was put up on a cross. He was mocked. He was disgraced. They ripped his back to shreds by whipping him. They shoved a crown of thorns on him. They put him in a purple robe. They blindfolded him and beat him and said, Hey, prophet, tell us who did that. You know, they hang him up, they stripped him naked, they hung him up, and they're throwing insults at him. You saved other people, why don't you save yourself? If you're really the savior of the world, why don't you save yourself? And as I thought about that, I thought that on that Friday when Jesus was crucified, on that Friday, there was no difference 
between Jesus and Saul. I mean, if you were to look from the outside, right? If you were a passerby, if you, or even if you knew all the stuff that was going on, everybody that looked at that, everybody that saw Jesus would have thought that he is in the exact same place as Saul. That he was wrong. That his God was overcome. Whoever his God was, it surely wasn't the true God because nobody who's, <laughs> who's trusting in the true God, that, that, that would never happen to them, right? He's defeated He's shamed. He's humiliated. I mean, his followers are shamed, right? Those closest to him were shamed. The city, in a sense, was shamed. His God was shamed on that Friday. You know, Saturday comes, and he is still the defeated Saul, right? Yeah, he's been taken down, but he's still defeated just as Saul until Sunday until Easter Sunday. Because on that Sunday, God did something that didn't happen for Saul. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him from the dead. All of the stuff, all of the, I mean, all the effects of sin that took its toll on the body of Jesus, God undid those things. He turned it back and they came untrue in Jesus. Jesus passed through death and came out the other side. He rose from the dead. And if you had eyes to see, right, there were a lot of people who saw him and saw this resurrected thing. They said, wait a minute, we saw you died. What's going on here? But for those who had faith, for those who saw Jesus and recognized that everything he said was true, that God was indeed his God, and that he really was the savior of the world, everyone who saw that, at that moment realized that when he was hanging on the cross, he wasn't there for himself. But he was there for you. Saul was dismembered and mutilated and hung up on a wall because of what he had done. But Jesus was dismembered and mutilated and hung up on a cross not because of anything that he had done, but because of what I've done. Because of what you've done. Because God so loved the world. Because God so loved you. That he was willing to send his son, not lie to his son and lead him into battle, but to tell his son, to give his son full disclosure about what was going to happen. I mean, for Saul, he did everything he could try, he did everything he possibly could to avoid shame, to avoid disgrace, to keep his reputation. And yet for Jesus, Jesus said, I will endure it. I will go through it. Because I love you. The text goes on in verse 11. These inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what happened to Saul and they came and rescued the king. 
Now, if you don't remember, these are the folks from chapter 11, okay, when Saul was beginning to reign. Enemy king came and said, I'm going to destroy all of you unless, unless you let me gouge out your right eyes. If you let me do that, then, um, then you won't have to die. So you got a choice. You can either die or just have an eye gouged out. They were stuck. They had no army. And Saul came and saved them. Saul, in an amazing act of hero- heroism and leadership, he took charge and he brought an army to rescue the city of Jabesh Gilead. And they didn't forget. They didn't forget. So when they heard what happened to Saul, they weren't ashamed of being identified with Saul, the humiliated king. And I just think, wow, how much more for us? How much more should we be moved to identify, to rejoice in, and be excited about identifying with Jesus? The Jabez Gileadites were willing to march all night and go into an incredibly hostile environment to save the body of Saul and his sons because of what Saul had done for them, because of what the king had done for them. And you just got to think, man, what has the king done for you? Where's your heart? I mean, do you feel like, do you identify with Jesus readily? Are you afraid to identify with him? Are you, gonna, are you willing to risk danger to your reputation, danger to your financial situation, uh, opening yourself up to shame and ridicule to be identified with Jesus? I mean, what's the Lord calling you to do? In the same way that Saul's influence spread sin and destruction in the, in the, in the nation of Israel, when you identify with Jesus, he fills you and you can fill the city with his righteousness and his glory and his grace. Just identifying with him sometimes is all that it takes. So that in one pocket of the city, in one pocket in your company, in one pocket in your neighborhood, in one place, someone is lifting up the cross of Jesus and saying, I love him. And I'm going to follow him because of what he's done for me. Where is the Lord calling you? How is God asking you to identify with Jesus in your life this week? And look, if you're failing in this, if you've been ashamed, if you feel burdened by, you know, by the idea of, of maybe what you haven't done, I just want to bring you back again to the cross. Okay, and I want you to see what he's done for you. Not to fill you with guilt, okay? Not to fill you with guilt, but to fill you with love. Okay, because Jesus didn't go to the cross to make you feel guilty. He went to the cross so that you would experience the love of God. So that in your being, you would know that he cares for you. And that's what you find if you need to come back and say, Jesus, I haven't identified with you. Jesus, I haven't represented you well. Jesus, I've been ashamed of you in certain areas. Jesus says, I died for that too. I was willing to die even for your lack of wanting to identify with me. I will cleanse you and show you even more how much I love you and send you back out. 
mean, that's our Savior. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Jesus, I can't believe that you did this. It is so hard sometimes. It's so easy just to put this aside and move on with my life because to stop and think about this, it's just mind-boggling. It shatters everything that I think is important to me. And it makes me remember that over everything, I need to plaster what you've done. I need to put in huge writing that you were willing to bear the shame for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If there's anybody here, Jesus, that hasn't yet been willing to identify with you, maybe it's an area of their life or maybe it's their entire direction of their life, would you speak to them and tell them that your death was for them and that your death makes a way for them to come into a relationship with you? Send your spirit among us and draw us closer to you and help us to share and identify with you this week with great joy and gladness. We pray in your name. Amen.